Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations about art and culture, you might want to check out the newest releases from David's Werner Books, where we've published award-winning titles on Diane Arbus, Yayoi Kusama, and Carrie James Marshall, in addition to Ekphrasis, the critically acclaimed series of texts on art. This season, look out for books from the likes of Catherine Bernhardt, Noah Davis, and Marcel Zama, as well as new additions to the beloved Ekphrasis series. Visit davidswernerbooks.com to learn more. Hi, I'm uh, Richard Prum, and I'm an evolutionary biologist and ornithologist at Yale University. From David's Werner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. Art is a form of uh, communication that co-evolves with its evaluation. Uh, it means that art is about communication, some kind of sensory exchange, and that there is a feedback loop. Right. And this means that art is essentially uh, a result of a process. I'm Lucas Werner, and every episode features a conversation. We're taking artists, writers, philosophers, designers, and musicians, and putting them in conversation with each other to explore what it means to make things today. This week's guest is Richard Prum. I first met Richard as a student at Yale where he's a professor and a curator at the Peabody Natural History Museum. He's also, more generally, one of the leading thinkers in evolutionary ornithology, or biological evolution through the study of birds. His work with birds has, over the years, revealed fascinating possibilities about evolution more broadly, not only as it relates to people, but also the evolution of art, culture, and aesthetics. The theory he's developing impacts how we think about genius, about radicality, about art in the internet age, and especially about the ecosystem that we call the art world. I feel like this conversation has been a long time coming. It's been, it's been what, eight or nine years since um, ornithology class uh, on Science Hill in, at Yale in New Haven. <laughs> And um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the research that I remember you doing then, um, and that obviously you have continued to do and to write about in recent books like The Evolution of Beauty, but to really maybe begin by talking through the, the question of what you call honest signaling and why you feel that honest signaling is not an adequate or accurate way of understanding um, evolution or really sexual selection? I just say broadly, really, I, I'm an ornithologist, which means that I'm a bird nut. I started uh, watching birds as a kid uh, and uh, at, at, you know, the age of 10 and just became obsessed with them. Uh, and, and that has led to a career uh, in uh, evolutionary biology and, and, and ornithology. And my own work uh, is really focused on birds. That's unapologetically, right? I don't try yeah. <laughs> to, to, uh, cure cancer or, or make it relevant, uh, to the world birds are enough, uh, of an excuse. And yet in a surprising way, a lot of the work has started to become relevant to the world in ways that I never, you know, to the non-bird world in ways yeah. that uh, I, I never expected. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, in combining early on in my career, trying to combine my bird watching uh, you know, skills, my interests and my academic interests, uh, really led to working a lot on behavior and the evolution of behavior. Uh, and in particular on 
some of the most prominent behaviors that, that birds display, which are uh, courtship displays. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these are, you know, songs, dances, movements, uh, a surprisingly diversity of, of things that birds do to attract mates. And they're not just all, uh, you know, uh, displays by males. Uh, in many species, there are males and females displaying. Or, or in some cases, the, you know, females sing the songs and the males are sitting on the eggs and taking care of the young. So it's a big diversity out there. But I have worked on uh, a lot of the most extreme, aesthetically extreme, I'll call them, uh, species, the ones the most elaborate courtship displays. And these include birds in South America uh, that are called mannequins and katingas. So after spending uh, 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 sometimes combined uh weeks watching individual birds if it's hard to imagine <laughs> and, and, and days and days and months you know in the field watching watching birds uh you know you you uh you, you what you think seriously about about what it is they're doing and how it in my case how it evolves and why it evolves and that led me to interact with a, a common theory uh in evolutionary biology which is that um oh, display uh, song, plumage, uh, movement, and dance, et cetera, are ways of indicating male or, or mate quality, right? Then, and uh, the idea here is that, you know, redder is better or whatever. That's, so the, the better you are at dancing, the better you are, period, in a way. The, and, the more and, suitable and that, you are, yeah. And, the, and that period refers to, in an objective way, uh, right. measurably, demonstrably better in some way that's going to, benefit the chooser. And, and the way that could happen would be that you have, uh, for example, better genes, right? That you have good genes that could be heritable to all your offspring, mm. uh, or that you are materially better because you have a good diet, you have a good territory, you have uh, other kinds of direct benefits that, 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 the, that the chooser might uh, uh, be able to enjoy. And for a lot of reasons, uh, Whatever it was I was doing, sitting on a, a, a log, watching a bird for days on end in South America, this idea never really appealed to me. And, and one of the reasons I'm articulating now, or I, I think it does, is because it, it really is a way to explain away uh, the extremity of the behavior. It's a way of taking uh, the irrational aspect of, of, uh, of, uh, of sex, of mating, and of attraction. Uh, and, and bring it back on the ranch, you know, if you will, uh, rationalizing it as a kind of, 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 of betterment, as a kind of improvement, right? And of course, this is really uh, fits in with the whole uh, adaptationist view in, in evolutionary biology, right? So, uh, it, so, so just to kind of fr- frame it a different way. So basically, you're suggesting that this, this way of thinking about it means that let's say the female birds who are looking at male displays are constantly making a calculated and rational decision based on color, plumage, the dance moves that they see um, that will lead them to a, a, a you know, better mate choice. And of course, that, that presumes a certain amount of, um, I, I mean, I want to say it's, it's anthropomorphizing to some degree, or it seems to be, um, because it presumes a, a high degree of what looks like human cognition, since they are evaluating things in a in some kind of a rational way. Well, you and know, it, yeah, they, the the evolutionary have haven't haven't approached it that way, and we we'll, we can get back to anthropomorphism. I mean, as articulated, the theory is it isn't that that uh, that animals have to be rational, uh, uh, but that of course their behavior is going to conform to a rational model. 
right? They're going to be, they're going to be uh, getting better as a result of their choice. And this kind of progressive view is a way of taking, um, what I am now consciously called beauty and aesthetic, uh, elements of the lives of animals and, uh, getting them to, under the rational control of, uh, of, of progress and improvement, right? Of adaptation. So, so what's the alternative to this adaptationist view? Uh, and the other is that, is that, uh, uh, is that animals, uh, are making choices based on what they like yeah. or what they don't like. Right. <laughs> and that this is about opening, uh, if you will, the subjectivity of animals and instead of kind of sweeping it off to the side, putting it at the center of, uh, of our science, right. And saying, okay, if, if, if these birds really are expending huge amounts of energy and dancing and singing and, uh, and huge parts of their lives. And this has evolved in complicated ways uh, and it appears to be evolving to choice. Let's actually think about, you know, about choice. Uh, and adaptationism is a way of shutting that all down and saying, oh, we have an explanation for that. And, and I'm really interested in, in the agency of individual, you know, of animal subjectivity. What is it, what is it like to be a, a bird seeking a mate and preferring this particular possible mate, right? And, and it turns out this opens up a, a lot of possibilities and, um, um, and it, 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 and even more interestingly, it turns out that this is the original concept in which mate choice as an evolutionary mechanism was proposed by Darwin, uh, back in uh, 1871. So it has a great lineage and it's one, it's an idea that's kind of, uh, uh, suppressed within uh, academia uh, with uh, people's interest in adaptation as a, as a kind of strong controlling force. And will you just quickly say a little something about the way Darwin f framed it and why that aspect of his writing was, as you say, suppressed or overlooked, or I mean, more than, more than overlooked, kind of actively overlooked, yeah. um, while the theory of natural selection, of course, became extremely dominant. When Darwin published The Origin of Species, he had a few persistent uh, challenges uh, that he hadn't addressed. Um, he didn't have any theory of genetics. He didn't, uh, you know, of inheritance. He didn't have any uh, of articulated theory of the origin of people. And he didn't have any theory for what he called the evolution of impracticable beauty. And then, you know, uh, 12 years later, published in 1871, The Descent of Man, where he addressed uh, at least the latter two, uh, the origin of people, and uh, selection in relation to sex or an alternative or in addition to the mechanism of natural selection. And this was, um, uh, you know, the evolution of heritable variations that give rise to differential mating and fertilization success. So these are like, uh, on one side, antlers and large body size through mating competition and uh, what he called beauty and, uh, and aesthetic traits that evolved through mate choice. And he used explicitly aesthetic language to describe, uh, to describe this. Now, modern evolutionary biologists, I think, uh, usually think of this flowery language as, you know, Darwin's Victorian dottiness, you know, there he is out in downhouse going a little, a little aged and he's isolated from the world of science mostly. Uh, and, and so they, they, they kind of ignore it, sweep it under the rug. They don't really actually read it. Uh, but I've been taking it quite seriously and thinking this is actually the, um, the main intellectual element of Darwin's theory of, of mate choice, uh, that it is about animal subjectivity. And, uh, of course he was accused of anthropomorphism. He was, uh, a lot of the criticisms of his idea were explicitly misogynistic. 
made choice was referred to as uh, vicious feminine caprice uh, in, in one of the early reviews. And, and this, in this case, vicious meant not merely like a, like a snarling dog, but actually, uh, you know, full of vice, you know, morally evil. Uh, to imagine females as as making choices based on uh, subjective pleasure, uh, and so uh, the idea was really uh, drummed out of evolutionary biology by uh, Darwin's, uh, you know, uh, adaptationist colleague uh, Alfred Russell Wallace, uh, who co-discovered natural selection, right? But was um, very eager to see that no other idea could could threaten, and uh, it was seen explicitly as a threat to the explanatory power of adaptation. And that's a response that uh, is still alive in, uh, in, uh, in evolutionary biology today. So before we kind of uh, turn and, and see how this uh, led to your, I think, interest in art worlds and in aesthetics in general, you're saying that in the scientific community today, there is still serious resistance to this idea that some form of animal subjectivity of, of desire, as it were, is driving um, mate choice um, as much or more than um, any amount of adaptation or any any alignment to this rational ideal. That that's just still not very few scientists are willing to entertain. I think in this case there, there's been a, there's been a little bit of a change. And one of the things that was interesting about the response to the evolution of beauty among academics is that there was uh, very little uh, blowback, if you will, about uh, proposing that uh, animals' subjectivity is important. And I think this has been a change. People, uh, evolutionary biology, professional biology, have, have now uh, abandoned, if you will, the kind of automaton uh, view of animal complexity, right? They're willing to admit that animals are making choices, but they still are very resistant as a group or as a, as a field to uh, the idea of a non-adaptive, view of mate choice as a, as a reasonable expectation or as an, as I propose uh, a no mal, you know, I think the aesthetic is kind of winning some battles <laughs> and losing others. I, I, I hope that that's the little uh, crack in the door that will allow, allow this to, to, uh, you know, people admit that bird, uh, that birds are smart, right. And even, even, in, even in the field and that they, there is something is like for them to be evaluating uh, potential mates and, and making choices as a result. I, I had one kind of specific question. So in the case of, of, let's call it aesthetic preference, if a bunch of birds, a bunch of male birds are uh, doing whatever the mating dance is, you know, my understanding is that the, the female response is, is quite automatic. And I'm curious if there is variability in the dances or specific differences that appeal, that you have observed, that appeal to different females in different ways. Does that question make sense that, that it's not as, um, I guess, kind of coded, but that there is um, variable desire among the, 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 the female observers? Yeah. Well, for, first of all, before I can get, you know, further into like an, an idea of aesthetic uh, sure. evolution as a process, I just want to be explicit about what, what, what that would be. What mm -hmm. I mean is that aesthetic evolution uh, occurs when uh, the organisms have, uh, uh, you, know, uh, sen you know, sensory capacity to, to observe the signal, you know, cognitive capacity to uh, evaluate, that is to judge, and, and the uh, uh, social opportunity to choose. 
And when those things align on some kind of uh, heritable substrate, whether it's genes or culture, then you will have things that evolve because they function in you know, cognitive evaluation. They don't function in the, it, explicitly in the physical world alone, uh, like cracking open a nut or finding a worm, uh, but they function through the, the, uh, the subjective evaluations of other individuals, right? And so that's really where I think the aesthetic is, uh, is located in biology. And there's lots of places where it might occur, you know, outside of mate choice, you know, pollination and flowers. Um, uh, and also it's not just about beauty. There are, uh, you know, aposematism, like warning coloration, like a coral snake or a rattlesnake sound or a skunk, right? These are, uh, you know, genres of horror, if you will, in the natural mm -hmm. world, right? And, and so, uh, it is very diverse. Now, moving to your question, you know, that means that the ways in which this can actually be manifest in a population or in a species are extremely diverse, right? So, um, for some, uh, features, uh, you know, it really looks like it's largely genetic, right? That is the, where the displays or the, and the plumages or, or the songs are genetically inherited, uh, and the preferences for them are also genetic and they are co-evolving, uh, uh, together, right? In other cases, they can be, uh, completely cultural. That is, uh, you know, half the birds of the world learn their songs from other individuals that are not their parents mostly. And what that means is that, um, you know, the birds sound differently in Chicago, uh, Boston and New York for the same reasons, essentially that the people do, you know, accidents of culture. Right. And so in those cases, preferences and, um, and, and performance are extremely local, extremely malleable. There is even uh, papers indicating that vocal neighborhoods in, uh, the Bay area in, uh, the white crowned sparrow uh, were noticeably changing, evolving, culturally evolving in response to uh, COVID reduction in traffic noise. Uh, and so, so this is incredibly rapid response and occurring in, um, in you know, real time uh, as fast as the top 40 in the radio, right? So, so the diversity of, 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 of kind of uh, aesthetic judgments and uh and aesthetic evolutionary mechanisms is really big that's fascinating so it, it makes total sense that in specific communities where there are different dialects as it were or different modes of presentation those are the ones that are preferred um and if you had you know one a chicago bird coming into a new york area it might have a hard time finding a mate and and and, and of course that process as birds migrate to South America or to Central America and then return to breed in this year in some species, right? Could, could create mixing, which would, which would fight the isolation of the dialects, right? right. But species that are resident, those dialects might become very, very rich and extremely local. And uh, if you have mountains and birds live on top of mountains, then, you know, they could get very uh, different um, uh, very rapidly, right? right. So, so uh, an over short uh, sure, spatial scales. There have been, there's been a lot of research in this. And one of the fascinating research by uh, Elizabeth Derryberry at uh, Tulane, she, when she was a student, played tapes of, uh, again, the white crowned sparrow in the Sierra Nevada. Uh, and she played tapes of the current dialect versus tapes of the dialect from 20 years ago. And she found that the responses by both males and females, both sexual interest or, or territorial threatened, threatened uh, response, 
um, were greater for the for the current songs than for the uh, for the uh, old song, and wow. and that that means that this process is kind of maintaining some kind of cultural relevance, right? Uh, the hits are are changing, uh, but in <laughs> essentially uh, in many ways arbitrary ways, and uh, but they still uh, their their meaning is still you know relevant and dynamic. This takes us to the kind of you know, an, an interest of yours that seems to be uh, growing, or it seems to be something that you're thinking more and more about, namely how all of this uh, has to do with questions of aesthetics more generally and questions of um, art worlds, of preferences. And some of those connections are probably clear just from how you've presented this. But it'd be great to hear how your thinking began to kind of bridge from birds and, and biology into uh, culture and the humanities, which was something I was sort of witnessing in real time as a student. I feel like that was when you were writing your first paper in 2013 um, that had to do with Arthur Danto and the art worlds, um, et cetera. You know, I've been working on this for a couple, well, decades now and, uh, and, and, and feeling like, wow, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not making the kind of scientific progress I would like. <laughs> and at some mm. point I realized that, that Darwin's aesthetic language was actually a sort of uh, a tool I could use, that he was an ally in this debate. And that if I could threaten people's identity uh, as Darwinians, <laughs> then maybe I could shake up the, how they're thinking and try to create some uh, intellectual change in biology, right? So it's a purely scientific uh, argument. But I thought, well, let's really explore the aesthetic language and get into it. And I was literally thinking, I've started, and it's, it's hard, the way I've uh, uh, become uh, uh, involved. It, it seems uh, ridiculous, but this is how uh, you know it works. Uh, I was really looking for a reference to put in a sense. <laughs> you know, something as trivial as that, like somewhere from art history or, or philosophy of art that could capture the you know arbitrariness of of uh, aesthetic change as opposed to the um, you know progressive idea that right. Uh, that, 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 that the adaptationist or, or, you know, honest signaling was probing. And so I started reading in aesthetic philosophy. And of course, I came, became very confused immediately. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I opened Kant and it's like, why would I ever, why would I ever want to think like this? I don't know. I don't understand why I should think like this. Um, and, 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 and many other things, right? And, and, and on a tip from uh, some colleagues at Yale, I said, Somebody said, well, maybe you should, maybe you should read, uh, you know, Arthur Danto, you know, and, I, and I, so I started with the art world, you know, his classic paper from 64, mm -hmm. uh, that was a response to Andy Warhol's Brillo box, which was on display. And of course, this is as famous and fundamental a paper in modern, uh, philosophy of art as you can get, but I, of course I was completely unaware of it. And, uh, I read it and it was at that point that my confusion kind of clarified. And I, I just, the, his language, his presentation, his, uh, if you will, kind of scientific style of analysis, at least mm -hmm. in that paper, mm -hmm. uh, was, was really attractive. And, and I also reached what I could call a, a hubris moment where I thought, wait a minute, not only do I understand this, it's very relevant. I could do this. I can go further, you know, and, and that's when I started under, you know, considering what, what, uh, Danto's art world, uh, could mean. And of course he proposed in uh, trying to understand how, uh, Brillo box, uh, a, a piece of work by Andy Warhol out of, um, plywood and, and stenciled and painted and presented in a museum, uh, could be a piece of art, uh, high art 
Whereas the commercial uh, packaging that it was uh, based on, that was used to hold uh, boxes of Brillo in the supermarket, uh, was not, even though they were sensorily identical. Mm-hmm. And so he was trying to address uh, in a kind of scientific control, if we eliminate the sensory or control for the sensory, two objects that are identically uh, perceived in the same way, why is one art and one is not? And he concluded that uh, theories of art that create uh, or uh, establish whether an entity would be a piece of art or a work of art um, are established by a, a community of individuals, a, a social group a cult that he referred to as the art world. That would include artists and collectors and uh, opinion makers and museum directors and galleries and all those, all those people involved. And that they are um, socially interacted to create uh, opinion about what constitutes art. And of course, this is a dynamic uh, hypothesis, right? Or a dynamic model. It's also a, a social model. And it also mm-hmm. uh, implies uh, a population, uh, a group of individuals. There are some people that are not members of the art world and some people that are. Uh, mm-hmm. And of course, his, his view of the art world, I think was, uh, uh, was pretty elite. It was focused on um, collectible, uh, uh, you know, art that you would talk about <laughs> Etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and that would be setting trends, and and but I really I really felt that since evolutionary biology has been talking about populations for a very long time, that this art world as a biological population uh, was really attractive, and mm-hmm. and I immediately saw that that Dento maybe hadn't gone far enough, and that uh, he he showed how the two, the art world. And the objects are, are somehow in some interaction that's creating what art is. But he didn't go far enough and saying, what is their relation beyond that just initial creation of the new art? Well, uh, you know, there are some obvious feedback loops in there that are mm-hmm. exactly like the uh, evolutionary biology models of, of an aesthetic process, right? And, and, and so I really get to see Dar- uh, or Gato's theory as uh, uh, inherently co-evolutionary where uh, art uh, and the opinion about art uh, are co-evolving with one another, uh, mutually influencing, so that um, Mozart can write uh, uh, music, which transforms the audience's capacity to imagine what music can do. uh, And then that new opinion about what music can do uh, feeds back upon, uh, you know, other uh, composers and other works by Mozart that, that lead to, to the uh, to the uh, cultural evolution of the classical style, right? And and that this ongoing continuity of interactions between producers and evaluators uh, are are, are uh, um, uh, uh, it's shared by uh, various kind of aesthetic phenomena, including human art and uh, and bird song, right? And, and that led me to really propose a, if you will, non reductive uh, uh, idea about. What, what art is and, and to get into that uh, sort of uh, classic uh, belly of the beast <laughs> issue in, in aesthetic philosophy and, and, and art criticism. So, so I think we kind of, we, we have to go to the belly of the beast and just sort of hear it, hear it from you. Uh, according to a theory like that, how do you define what an artwork is or what art is in that dynamically a changing system. Uh, without going through the history of of, of people's failures in this in this area, I was make mine. I assert that uh, art is a form of uh, communication that co-evolves with its evaluation. Right, 
And, and so that is both a population phenomenon, right? You've got to have multiple individuals. Uh, it means that art is about communication, some kind of sensory exchange, and that there is a feedback loop, right? And this means that art is essentially a, 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 a result of a process, right? So the quality of being an artwork is not invested in its materiality or its sensory properties or in the solely in the um, aesthetic experience of an observer, but in uh, the historical process, the, inter the series of interactions that gave rise to uh, that, that, that event. I uh, published in 2013 a paper outlining that idea and, and trying to defend it. And, um, and, and I'm still very interested in, you know, the myriad of art worlds that are implied by this, uh, not just uh, human art worlds, but uh, uh, art worlds uh, of, uh, of other non-human aesthetic agencies, including uh, lots of animals and, and bees and uh, birds and, and, and whales and, and lots of organisms in between. And that seems to be a, a, a crucial feature uh, that makes this argument interesting to you is that it sort of decenters, as you've put it, the, the human being uh, as the only aesthetic arbiter and classifies the competing art worlds that we experience as humans or let's say competing sort of communal aesthetic co-evolving uh, phenomena uh, with and puts them alongside those that happen in the, in the, in the organic world more broadly, as you said, right. with and, these picking and, flowers. And, 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 a and it turns out that, you know, without understanding it, uh, spending your life taking birds seriously, right. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it is compared to most people's, uh, a, a form of existence, a decentering, right. But sure. it, it, it makes sure. you very comfortable, uh, it, 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 in, 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 in this world where, where, uh, where humans are not at the organizing center of, of what we think about. And, uh, the other thing was to realize that this kind of decentering is really, you know, been at, at the core of a lot of scientific, or at least I think, you know, uh, uh, empirical progress, right? Uh, mm -hmm. A little Absolutely. over 500 years ago, Galileo looked up at the heavens with one of the first uh, telescopes and, and, and realized in observations over a series of nights that, um, that the moons of Jupiter were uh, orbiting around that uh, that planet around another center that was not, had nothing to do with us. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and the cosmology that, that shift that occurred, you know, transformed our understanding of the universe. Right. And, uh, all the way through, uh, you know, relativity and uh, quantum mechanics, each one of these mm -hmm. uh, events has, has led to a successive increase in decentering of our experience from, uh, yeah. from existence. And now we realize we're in an average or backwater of a nowhere galaxy in the middle of nowhere, right? <laughs> and, well, you know, people might find that uh, that disorienting. Uh, I, I tend to think that's kind of exhilarating because the fact that we're here, you know, having this conversation uh, when that is true uh, means that, you know, there is some other kind of value that's, that's, uh, that's arising <laughs> in the middle of nowhere, right? Which is, which is more extraordinary than if it was at the center of everything, right? So, yeah. so, so this kind of what I really consider to be kind of a post-human move, in other words, post-human, not in terms of like creating cyborgs or, you know, uniting people with, yeah. with, with uh, computers and, and, and technology, but post-human in, in the terms of like that we are over trying to organize our understanding of the world in terms of exclusively or of, of human agency. And this is really about the agency of other animals and other organisms and, and how it um, can expand our own understanding of our own. So 
that's kind of where I was, where I, where, where, where I want to go, where I was hoping would go is, is, you know, if by analogy to, to these biological, our worlds, let's call them, what can we glean about the way we typically understand art in our world? And, you know, for example, one thing that comes to mind immediately is when you talked about culture, you mentioned an individual Mozart, right? Whose music redefines or, you know, sets new limits for what we understand as music. Those new expectations, of course, allow for the development of a new style, the classical style, and, and, and so on, as it were, through all innovations. That still sounds to me like a, um, let's call it a great individual uh, version of aesthetic history, right? Or aesthetic philosophy, where a, an individual innovates, a, a human comes along and breaks the rules in a community and allows the community to establish a new set of rules, which in turn exerts different pressures and permits new forms of expression. I wonder, you know, how you see those mechanisms playing out the way the co-evolution happens in, let's say, a, an avian community versus uh, a human community, because presumably uh, it's, it's much less individual driven in the biological spheres than the way we typically at least understand it for ourselves or make sense of it for ourselves in our human spheres. Yeah, so so that, 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 the the Mozart example is 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 uh, is is easy because it actually exploits people's uh, that's exactly right of, of genius <laughs> as, as the role of genius, right? So exactly. Uh, so so uh, and so that's that's it gets across the idea of coevolution very rapid, but it doesn't represent what um, uh, a coevolutionary idea or a coevolutionary concept of art uh, necessarily involves. Um, because it's a coevolutionary process, we would say in another decentering, uh, we would decenter the, the artist, genius, producer uh, as uh, necessarily the, the 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 source, if you will, of innovations, uh, and realize that the, that the community of of evaluators, uh, which of course can include artists as well, but it, 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 abstractly, the community of evaluators is essentially equivalently empowered or equivalently yeah. able to affect the direction of aesthetic change. And I've been in, uh, corresponding with um, various scholars in, in, in literary studies. And the example that, uh, that comes to mind is uh, the role of, of literate women in the Middle Ages uh, as creating an expanded new audience for the novel uh, mm. and for the poem, which led to kind of the, 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 the or contributed to uh, the origin of chivalry and tales of, of, of chivalry, right? And so this was a, if you will, an audience-led aesthetic uh, change process, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, this also aligns with even some of the most, uh, you know, radical or, or, or modern deconstructionist views of, of, of aesthetics, right? Where the audience or observer or reader is empowered to, relative to the author, uh, to yeah. create the meaning of the work, right? And, and so one of the advantages uh, of, the aesthetic, of, of this uh, you know, co-fluché art world's perspective is that it can accommodate both these concepts of how aesthetic change can happen. And, um, you know, when I think about what you're describing there, it, it seems like the enlarging and contracting of audiences uh, also plays uh, an essential role. Like if we think about some of the developments which are now um, so, uh, you know, canonized 
in around, let's say, Andy Warhol, that was a very small art world relative to the one that we're dealing with now, right? Which is yeah. much more international, where images fly digitally all over the world. There's visual literacy in far-flung reaches of basically every region, um, or at least, let's say, visual familiarity with the visual cues that we associate with contemporary art. While 50, 60 years ago, that just wasn't the case. And that was the, those were much more localized innovations that we now see as as um you know having changed the direction dramatically does um fluctuation in audience in the in the size of the observing population change the direction of coevolution like how do how do some of those mechanisms work or sure i mean it, it, uh, we could from the area of uh, population genetics and from uh, theories of, of uh, cultural evolution that have been involved in uh, or been created in anthropology and uh, people interested in this already uh uh, you know, you can make lots of, uh, you know, quantitative or, 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 or particular uh, predictions about uh, the pace and uh, consistency of, of, uh, of aesthetic change, yeah. uh, given the composition of, of art worlds, right? So one thing we know is that small populations and isolated populations can uh, differentiate from each other a lot more easily uh, than if they're in interaction, right? So right. people move around a lot more. And the people in Chicago and New York and Boston and Mississippi start sounding a lot more like each other, right? If everyone's listening to the same radio programs and the same television and the same TikTok, well, then, <laughs> then they'll start to uh, 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 share more in common. The, the, you know, size itself is, is also interesting because often if you have uh, large size populations, uh, they tend to evolve uh, less uh, rapidly. And, and that's mostly because the advantages in one part and the advantages in the other part might, might, uh, might uh, uh, weigh each other. However, we seem to be relying now on all sorts of technologies that are particularly unstable or tippable or subject to uh, sudden uh, you know, perturbations. And that's something about you know, the internet and uh, mm. you know, uh, virality in the modern, modern uh, you know, memes that we have very, very fast paced change. So, so, uh, all sorts of things. And of course this could be uh, my one thing to aspire to is, 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 uh, um, explicitly aesthetic, uh, research in exactly these kinds of areas people working yeah. on, there's a tradition of working on cultural evolution models in a quantitative way, but many of them are, 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 are really explicitly reductionist. I mean, they want to show that culture is just another kind of adaptation uh, rather than study it for its own sake. I mean, it really seems like the internet is this, um, is a case in point for the ability that, that, that sort of homogenization, almost of very broad, uh, populations that all communicate, but also these, the development of pockets that are highly self-isolated and that develop their own rules, right? Which is, is sort of fascinating. And all, and also just like rapid revolutionary change, right? That, that uh, happens, uh, extremely quickly and that capacity for uh, feedback is happening so quickly uh, that it really reinforces the notion of uh, of both the 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 arbitrary and of that that feedback itself as somehow a, a critical element to what what art is. Of course, there are other cases, uh, other forces involved too. Some uh, art worlds are uh, you know very difficult to change, and very uh, yeah. immovable, immo you know immobile. Uh, and, and, and usually that becomes, you know, as a result of, of uh, you know, cultural forces impinging on uh, aesthetic production and evaluation to, to reinforce um, conservatism or, or consistency. And, you know, if, if you were to, and I really, I mean that genuinely, that this is not something that, that you ought to be um, 
you know, held to, but to hazard a speculation, if you look at the way, you know, aesthetic worlds are developing with the tools that are at our disposal, communication tools that are at our disposal, do you see, um, or do you foresee more of this, more the development of a kind of more consistent, let's call it less, um, radically disruptive, um, aesthetic landscape where there's maybe let's call it a slightly flatter, but broader sense of agreement about what's acceptable and not acceptable and more fits, but there's less room for the rules to change? Or do you think there will be these pockets of uh, increasing disruption that actually have a chance at shaking the entire system up? We've just been through this, this uh, pandemic experience, this unbelievably, uh, you know, <laughs> extreme in its, in its unexpectedness and it's a complete predicted. <laughs> yes. Any yes. biologist, especially evolutionary epidemiologists have been predicting this for a long time. And of course, even those of us in evolutionary biology who understood it had no, con no concept of what it would actually mean in real life to, 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 to suddenly, uh, uh, not go to the grocery store all the time or, you know, not get in a car for, for, for weeks, you know, this unexpected, uh, uh, event. Right. And, 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 uh, of course, I think that this just, makes us realize that, um, you know, a lot of what we take for granted or have taken for granted is, is, is going to change. It's not just about, uh, uh, right. technological lives or technological change. It's about other aspects that are kind of, that are starting to impinge on human lives around the globe. And th that of course is, you know, uh, climate change, uh, mm -hmm. environmental degradation, uh, the, uh, this pandemic and maybe the next one and the next one after that. You know, these kinds of, of events are really do affect us. And I think one of the things that we're, we're, we're likely to see uh, increasingly is that uh, no aspect of life is going to remain isolated from them. And, and so I really see those as, uh, you know, creating a new agenda for, at least for human aesthetics. You know, that's um, both extremely timely and, and powerful. I mean, uh, a little bit scary, but it sounds... Um, sounds very convincing that, of course, as patterns of life are intruded upon by things like a pandemic or natural disaster, of course, aesthetic worlds and aesthetic landscapes will, will inevitably change as behavioral patterns change. The flip side, of course, is that uh, that doesn't mean that, 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 uh, um, uh, that, you know, meaning and the, and the personal value that yeah. art provides in, 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 in human lives, is going to be any less essential. It's going to be more essential. Right. Uh, and yeah. so, uh, how many of us have, uh, retreated to whatever arts we enjoy during this challenging, you know, year and a half, right. Uh, uh, all of us, I'd say. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and I, and I think that, uh, shows that, that the, the relevance uh, is not going to be going away just because there's kind of new agendas intervening, right? On that beautiful, uplifting note, Rick, I want to thank you for coming and talking so widely about your interests. And I really feel that um, seeing these analogies between the worlds that you have spent your life studying and the cultural worlds in which we find ourselves immersed um, are, are very, it's very productive and very illuminating. So. Thank you, and it's just great to be speaking with you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was a real pleasure. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. 
You can find out more about the artists on this series by going to davidswarner.com dialogues. And if you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help other people discover the show. I'm Lucas Warner. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you join us again next time.